we have because we have children who live in Florida and they knew by the time they were late teenagers that they were not going to spend the rest of their lives in northern Minnesota because they were both tired of the cold and two of them have made their way to Florida. So we have made a number of trips to Florida to see them. You know that. That's nothing new to you guys. We will be back there in two weeks as my daughter gets married, so we're very, very excited about that. Um, There's a place that one time when we were there, and we don't go every time. In fact, it's only been a few times. But there's a place in Florida, in Sarasota, that we just had time to kill, and we found this this little place in Sarasota, Florida, called St. Armand Square. And it's just a pretty little area, and it's got restaurants and boutique shops all around this circle that is there. Why they call it St. Armand Square, come to think of it, when it seems to be a circle, I don't know. But um, it's just a neat little place. We just happened on it. And so it's one of my favorite places when we have extra time to just go, let's just relax, enjoy going there. One of the things that you pass on the way there as you get to Sarasota, and uh, some of you will have seen this, we're all familiar by now with the famous picture at the end of World War II of the sailor kissing the nurse. You've seen that, right? We've all seen that famous picture. How many of you have seen the statue in Sarasota, Florida of the sailor kissing? You know what I'm talking about. That's really neat, isn't it? You see that and you go, yeah, it's huge. It's probably maybe as tall as the, this ceiling in here. And when you see it, you know immediately what it is. It's just, it's beautiful. It's colorful. The, the picture, of course, is in black and white. And it just catches you. It just catches you, okay? And, and so for us, that, that little place has just been kind of a neat little find, if you will. Coming to the book of Ezekiel, I thought there was a pretty good chance that I was going to wind up with Ezekiel 28. Now, that's because of an experience in my own life. When um, I, can recall, I can recall sitting in the Des Plaines Bible Church where I met Lori and where I met the Savior, and uh, was at the back. I can remember. I could take you to the spot where I was sitting, and there was a choir loft in the back, and the, the, the pastor was preaching, and he, and he touched on both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and the fall of Satan in the same message. And somehow, it was the fact that 14 times 2 is 18. I just noted that. I was able to remember the references to those two passages and always be able to find them. Now, sometimes I'd switch the books up and, you know, kind of went, oh no, this was the one that had the 28th chapter as opposed to the other, whatever. But it marked it for me. So, that being said, when I came to Ezekiel, I, in my mind, I still have that experience of the, of the 28th chapter. And, I've, and I found that pretty good chance I'm going to wind up there. But then, in reading Ezekiel in one sitting for uh, preparation for this, to just get a sense, Lord, what would you have me to bring? It's like the 18th chapter sat there, like this sweet little find like St. Armand Square in Sarasota. There's just something about that that just drew me as I contemplated it and thought, I think we need to touch on this. And our memory verse is the very last verse of the chapter, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. And... um, No, I'm saying it was our last verse, and uh, it also is 
it is twice. I'd like to, I'd like to correct that 1830. Oh, I see, what, I see what I did. Forget about it. I'm, I'm in a fog here, okay? It is 1832. Why that little 24 superscript is there, I'm not sure. But let's not worry about that. Let's just keep 1832 as our verse in our minds. Um, and we're going to come to this chapter. Now, why is this such a sweet little find? Here's what it comes down to as I looked at that. I thought, you know, the essence, the essential thought of the gospel is tucked away here in this chapter. Some of the things that we consider essential to the gospel are tucked away. Now, <clears throat> i got to tell you this, okay? You need to know, Pastor Evan and I, we have some good conversations and uh, he really likes to be theologically precise. And one of the things he has said twice now, as we've, as we've just discussed uh, some stuff about messages coming up, one of the things twice he's mentioned, and he's absolutely right, and that is that these people are waiting for Christ to come the first time. When, the, when Ezekiel is writing, uh, they're still anticipating the arrival of Christ. It'll be six centuries, actually, before he's going to come. So they don't understand the gospel in the way that we do, but God is redeeming people during that time frame. And Peter says that uh, they didn't always know even what they were writing, that they were even understanding necessarily what they were writing because it was written for us, and we have a fuller understanding. We, of course, anticipate Christ's second coming, but they had not seen yet his first coming. So I I want to just make it clear that when I talk about some things that are essential to the gospel, that um, I'm not talking about it specifically as the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, crucified, buried, raised again the third day. That hadn't happened yet. But you will see some elements that are here that it just kind of went, huh, isn't that intriguing? Now, the, the chapter begins with God addressing a proverb that was current during that time frame. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1, and Paul, were, oh, Paul was able to get it up. I, we, our paths didn't cross, and I wasn't sure if it had ever gotten to the screen or not. And Paul, I'm going to jump down in places, so don't worry about hitting every verse. It's just easiest to tell you. Put the whole chapter in there, okay? Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying... The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. They can understand what the proverb means, or what it says in in its picture. And it's like, okay, so here the fathers have eaten sour grapes. Somebody here has eaten sour grapes. But over here, the children are the ones who are going... That's not very good. Well, what's the point of that? The point is, what the fathers have done is bearing influence upon the children. And I believe what was happening at this time is what they're saying is, hey, God, because they're they're being dragged off, you've got to understand, right? Right into captivity with Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to be happening. And um, I believe what the point is, they are trying to blame upon God, ultimately, that, hey, it was our forefathers who acted this way. Now you're judging us. Now we're the ones who got to get dragged away. And thus this saying, the fathers have eaten the sour grapes, but the, the children's teeth are set on edge. Why are we suffering 
for them. And that's kind of this grumbling that's out there. And Ezekiel says, gets this word from God, says, you're not going to grumble that way anymore. We're going to put an end to that. And these first 18 verses or so are a lengthy discussion that we're going to only be able to highlight some things. But he says, uh, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. That's a significant point that Ezekiel is making in this, in this thing, is that people are going to be held accountable for their own guilt, their own sin. And you'll see that in a couple of places. If a man is just and does what is lawful and right, verse 5, if he has not eaten on the mountains, and that's where the shrines to pagan gods would have been, not lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes, kept my judgments faithfully, He is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. A description of an individual seeking to walk in the righteousness of the law in which God had prescribed. He says that soul will live. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does, and, and does none of those duties but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife. And now he goes on, gives the same list of, of behaviors. But here a guy is doing all the behaviors wrong. He is walking unrighteously in his behaviors. And at the end of verse 13, he says, He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Him. So the one who is guilty of these things, he is going to experience the punishment. Verse 14, if, however, he begets a son who sees all the sin which his father has done, this next generation now, and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife... Drop down to the end of verse 17. That he's walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So there's a simple principle that that God is laying forth here. And you'll notice if you're filling in our outline, we'll just want to make it this way. God's principles are clear. God's laying out for them clearly how he's operating with them. They're claiming that they're in this predicament because their fathers did this. And ultimately, what he is pointing out to them is, you have done it too. You're as guilty as your fathers were. You know, I, as, I, as I contemplate that, you know, we come to place times like Easter and we reflect seriously and personally upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And does, it ever, does it ever cross your mind? I know it does mine. I feel it every time. 
that as we consider the crowds that yelled, crucify him, crucify him, and they turned against Jesus, and they were glad to see him hang on the tree, and, and they said, uh, others he helped, he can't save himself, and they mocked him, and, and, and they made his situation all the most miserable. See, one thing we can do is we can look at those people and say, weren't they terrible? Weren't they just terrible how they did that to Jesus? And I look at him and go, I would have been there with him. I'm one of them. I'm one just as guilty and would have yelled these things at Christ also because I'm no different than them. And so Ezekiel is encouraging the people to identify that, hey, God's not unrighteous here. Okay, God is the one who works properly and He's not unrighteously judging someone for something they did not do. So God judges us then as individuals. The one who does right, the first father, he does right, he'll live. Won't suffer this judgment. Now in this particular case, you know, uh, some of the judgment that they're facing, of course, is being dragged out of the land. The one who uh, then, the one who has turned against God, okay, he's going to suffer judgment. The next son that comes along, he sees what his father did, said, well, that's no way to live. He's not going to suffer the judgment. All right, so God judges us as individuals. Hang on to this now. Uh, Verse 19, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. Verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. And there he just pins it right down The one who is guilty will suffer the death. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, this this next little passage, I believe, is very important to understand the gospel that we preach. I really believe it. It has a point here, and I'm hoping you'll go there with me. If a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statute, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousnesses which he has done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die. So you get the two, you get the two distinctions. You've got a wicked man. He's been living wickedly. He turns from it. And now enters into living righteously, he says, that guy's going to live. You've got a righteous man. He's going along, going along, and for whatever reason decides, I'm tired of living this life. Now he enters into the wickedness. And he says, that guy's going to die. Hang on. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O Israel, O house of Israel, I'm in verse 25. Is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. 
Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he, does, which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? See, friends, this, these verses get to the very heart of the way God measures the question of, of, of judgment, if you will. When I worked at Travanagh Labs two years, for, two years out of, um, for two years out of college, worked as a quality control chemist, I had to mix up my own solutions. And we had, we had balance scales. You know, very precise balance scales. Not the most precise you could get, but they would weigh things to ten thousandth of a gram and weigh them accurately because I had to be very precise in the solutions that I created. These were all according to U.S. pharmacological uh, standards. And so I could weigh things. Now, this balance is, is what's called an equal arm balance, right? You put a, a known weight on this side... And then you put your chemicals you're weighing on this side. Then you got a little readout thing. It'll tell you exactly what you have to ten thousandth of a gram. Go, wow, that's pretty cool. Now, I give you that because that is not, that's not how God weighs us. See, God does not take, hey, on this side, I'm going to put all of the bad things you did, all your unrighteousness. And on this side, I'm going to put all the good things you did. And let's be honest, man in his humanity can do some things that are good. I'm not saying they're 100% pure in their motives. I don't know if we ever reach that. But I don't want to stand in a place that says that somebody who's, who doesn't believe in God never does a good thing. I don't believe that. I believe we look at things and we say, that is good. You help the poor. Here's a little old lady. She's had a flat tire. You get out, you help that little old lady because you have compassion on her with her flat tire. That's a good thing. But God doesn't go, all right, here's your good things, here's your bad things. And if the good things weigh it down this way, you're in. And if the bad things weigh it down this way, well, it's a bad day for you. That's not the scale that God uses. See, right here, right here gives us an interesting insight, doesn't it? Why is it that the guy who started out, started out bad but became good why he finds he lives, and the guy who started out good but died in being bad, he doesn't live. Why is that? You see, what's the issue in each case? The issue is unrighteousness or sin that's not been dealt with. That's the problem. God doesn't weigh our sins against our good deeds. God sees he's got a standard that's very exact, okay? Any level of sin any level of sin. And he cannot be in fellowship with us. That sin has to be dealt with. The soul that sins shall die. We like to think in terms of, well, if I'm not too bad of a sinner, then I maybe have a hope. Sorry. Any level of sin. So the problem for each of us is we've all got some sin. We've all got some unrighteousness. And what God is speaking to here is... The unrighteousness has to be dealt with. So the guy who started out in unrighteousness and turned away from it, he's dealt with it. And he sought 
the forgiveness from the Lord. And he has sought to live in a different place. And he has acknowledged that he was wrong. But he describes the other guy who starts out in righteousness, but dies in unrighteousness. He never dealt with it. He decided, I am not doing that. And so that unrighteousness is still sitting there. And God's standard says, this sin has never been dealt with. Therefore, you bear the weight of that sin. Do you see what I'm getting at, friends? I hope you get this. Because I've thought about this for many, many years. In the gospel that we bring, in the gospel that we share, in the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ, it, the, the issue is it deals with our fallenness, our brokenness, our unrighteousness. It deals with the problem that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is the thing that separates us from God. Sin is the thing that is getting in the way from us having a relationship with the Father. That's what has to be dealt with. And you don't deal with it by putting it into balance and going, well, I did all these nice things. Sorry. The sin itself is what God sees. And that sin, whatever it is, needs to be dealt with. Are you with me? Does that make sense? All right. So, God doesn't use a balance scale. He uses the perfectly righteous standard that is grounded in himself. He's the standard by which we're being measured against. Now, none of us can live up to him as a standard because we're fallen, broken people. We all get that. We know that. We might say, well, God is unfair that he measures us against that standard. No, because he provides a way to solve the problem of the sin, if we're willing to receive the way that he has provided. Okay? Last thing, verses 30 to 32. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and go get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. If you understand the gospel, you know that's part and parcel to the gospel right there. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the depth of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. The last thought I want to believe, or, uh, bring out relative to God's principles, his principles of being clear, is that God is just in his judgments. Friends, God says, I am going to judge. And we need to understand when people stand before the Lord in judgment, and we will, individually, when we wind up in that place, those who are lost, those who have died without letting God deal with the unrighteousness in their lives, not a one of them will be able to shake their fingers at God on his throne and say, you have treated me unfairly. No one will be able to say that because God has been completely just in his judgments and he will remain completely just in his judgments. And when he deals with the sin that somebody chose to die and said, Lord, God, I don't want what you offer. We're not going to stand over here then and say, yeah, you treated me unfairly because we will know immediately he offered it to me and I rejected it. And I said it was not to be a part of me. So God's principles are clear. He judges us as individuals. He doesn't use a balance scale. 
but the perfectly righteous standard grounded in himself. And God is just in his judgments. He will judge. And they will be righteous judgments. The next thing that we just wanted to, from an outline perspective, is just go, but, and God's motivations are pure. God's motivations are pure. See, because they, they, were, they were challenging him. That's why the proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Something isn't fair here. And he puts it to that question to them. Twice in this passage. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair in your ways which are not fair? I just want to point this out. Because we're all susceptible to coming to this place where we see that we believe God has not dealt fairly with me. <laughs> Been there. That's how I, at least I, it's impacted me in significant ways. Friends, that is what I refer to as the great cosmic lie. The great cosmic lie says that God's intentions towards you are not for your best. And we see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When God had told him not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan came in and said what? You're not going to die. God's keeping the good stuff for himself. God knows in the day you eat thereof, you shall become as gods, knowing good and evil. That's, he's lying to you. See, God's keeping it for himself. He wants to be the only one who has this knowledge, this insight. He wants to be the only one so he can be the big man on campus. See, he's not treating you well. His intentions towards you are not good. Here in Ezekiel chapter uh, 18, it's people who believe that God's not fair. You can just see the evil one feeding that to them. Yeah, God doesn't treat you fairly. Look at what you're going through. This isn't fair. You don't deserve this. When God is literally, literally warning them for centuries before letting them be carried away because of the hardness of their hearts and the, and the fact they will not turn. They will not turn from their unrighteousness. So God's motivations are pure. This also speaks to something, friends, that you will hear from time to time that I want you to be armed to... Um, I want you to be armed, and I think this chapter will help some. When you hear people say, as if somehow there's this dichotomy within the Scriptures, that somehow our Bibles exist in this way. You have the Old Testament God who was angry and judgmental and always ready to crush his people. That's the Old Testament God. And then we have the New Testament God who is love and kindness and grace and joy and sweetness. Friends, that is a false dichotomy. And I want you to be aware of that. He is the same God working out the same plan of redemption. And notice right here as he puts the question, or he puts the exhortation to them. Yes, he's going to judge. But he speaks of judgment in the New Testament too, right? Repent and turn from all your transgressions, verse 30, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. He's calling them out of this 
godless life, this worship of idols, this disconfidence in something that can never help them. Remember the one who foolishly made the idol with the one piece of wood and burned the rest to cook his meal? He's like, how stupid is that? Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit for why should you die? It's not a necessity. There is a way provided for you. Why should you die, O house of Israel? Notice this statement. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. This is what he's calling them to. No pleasure. In the death of one who dies. And in this dichotomy about the angry God, one could begin to think that's almost what he lives for. He loves to see people get crushed. He loves to see that happen. Because that's who he is. That's that God. And we don't worship that God. I worship that God of the Old Testament. Because he's the same God of the New Testament. I just don't buy the dichotomy. I don't buy the, the statement that says, yeah, he's the angry God. No. He's God, and he doesn't change. And he is calling to his people, why should you die? It's not necessary to die. I have provided ways for you to be delivered from destruction. This is what I desire for you. Turn and live. Live. Don't don't put yourself to necessitate the judgment that I must bring upon sin, and I'm giving you centuries, literally, to grasp this and understand it. So, here's the point that I'm trying to make, friends. As you look at this, this just sweet little find in the book of Ezekiel, tucked away here in our Old Testament, and I'm hoping, as I remembered Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, I'm hoping you guys will all remember Ezekiel 18 today. And just know that there's something that I can understand of how God works. And 30, 40 years from now, you're going to remember, yeah, I was sitting in church and I was right there. And and this was brought up and God brought it home to me. These important things. Because these principles and motivations are within the essence of the gospel that we bring. Again, heaven would caution us. Christ hasn't come yet. They don't have the fullness of the gospel yet. But you sure see things that are identified with the gospel right here. Number one, we will give an account of ourselves individually. We're not going to pass it off that, well, my father was this, my mother was that, I had this group of friends, and they dragged me the wrong way. None of that's going to stand before God. Romans fourteen twelve. so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. We will be held in judgment, accountable for our own actions. Secondly, we're given account of ourselves as measured by God's perfect standard. Romans 2.2 2 says this, We know that the judgment of God is according to truth. According to truth. It's not gonna, we're not going to slide anything by him. Nobody is going to get anything past him. And he is not going to bend his standard to accommodate us. There's going to be the standard of truth, 
And truth is reality as God knows it. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is truth. And when he judges, it will be by truth. And his judgment will be just. No one will accuse him. We've mentioned that already, but that's why I'm saying. You can see it here, and it's back here for us. And we see these things filled out as we look at the, at the New Testament. In fact, I started getting myself in all sorts of trouble. I'm looking at all these verses that I'm going to be charity. It's like, i got way too much here. I can't do that. But these things all show up in the gospel after Christ came, when we had a fuller understanding of it. So his principles remain the same. They're clear. And his motivations remain the same also. Do they not? God is reaching out to us in love. John 3.16. We we won't go any further than one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See? After Christ, we understand how that love was demonstrated in Christ and how righteousness comes through Christ. See, in the Old Testament, their righteousness came through Christ too. They just were waiting for the one who could bear their righteousness to be revealed. We're all saved through the same Christ. God is reaching out to us in love. God wants to transform us into something new. When he tells them, get yourself a new heart and a new spirit, he said in verse, uh, verse 31, cast away from you your transgression. How many places is something of that nature written into our New Testament uh, epistles and our understanding as the gospel is revealed to us? You know, in Ephesians, Paul cautions or, or exhorts us to put off the old man, put on the new man in the image of Jesus Christ, made in his image, right? John 3, 3, this is the, the heart of it. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There has to be an internal change in you that takes place. Because if you just stay who you are, you just remain a sinner, you're not going to find wholeness in your sin and in your unrighteousness. There has to be a transformation, Romans eight twenty nine. Whom he did foreknow them, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's a transformation that takes place. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the exhortation. Somebody help me out with it right now, because I'm drawing a blank now. Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto the Lord, to do reasonable service. And be uh, be not conformed to the image of this world, but be what? Transformed. So this whole idea of a new heart and a new spirit being put in you, we see the fullness of that. We understand that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. We understand how how, what what God is restoring us to and, and giving us hearts that desire to serve Him. But this concept of transformation, it was in its at least in its seed form right here in Ezekiel chapter 18. And it's essential to the gospel that we proclaim. And God calls us to turn. And receive life. Does he not? See, what did he say? Where did this finish? He says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Give me another word for turning, people. Repent. Repent. That's the essence of what repent means. We don't, we, you know, we define repenting as turning. But we don't use the turn so much because we use repent. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his purpose, his promise, rather, Peter wrote, as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us. Just like he was long suffering towards the Israelites. Centuries calling out to them, centuries warning them that I will need to judge you. The day will come when I must bring the judgment upon you if you just refuse to listen. Go back, read Jeremiah just in one sitting, and you'll just see how they just intentionally refused to listen to God's call to turn. But centuries went on before he brought the judgment. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. He is still long-suffering towards us. Is he not? Is he not patient with us? Is he not hold up with us and bear with us as we come up with all the most stupid excuses that we can to keep turning away from him? He is. He is. The day will come. He's going to judge, though, people. It is going to happen. He's long-suffering towards us. Notice this. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's how Peter states it. Ezekiel said, quoting God, I have no pleasure in the death of one. Or, or why should you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies. Says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. Ezekiel 18, friends, it's a sweet little find tucked back there into that Old Testament. And it has principles and a sense of who God is, his motivations towards us that we can identify. He's still working in these ways. It's a sweet find. The exhortation there is pretty simple, isn't it? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. There's two levels at which I think that can be addressed. Um, I think they're both legitimate. Their implications are a little bit different, but let's let's just work from this perspective. The wages of sin is death. Plain and simple, friends. When we embrace sin, when we live in sin, when we commit sin, when we see it as a better thing than to walk with God, sin is sin and it brings death all the time. Now, two levels, and here's what I mean by that. The first level in which we need to turn and live is to acknowledge our need. We're on this side of the cross. We know what Christ has done for us. We know that he bore our transgressions on the cross, that he's there in our place. That is the way of dealing with the sin. Remember what we said about the, the guy who starts out good, he turns bad. The guy, who, the guy who starts out bad, but he turns good. Why does the guy who starts out bad, but turns good, things are all right? Because he dealt with the sin. The guy who starts out good and decides he's good enough and then goes into the bad, he dies in it. He never dealt with it. You see, friends, we all, we all, are going to give account of ourselves. And there's only one or two ways we're going to account for that sin problem. Remember? Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Not whether I was more good than bad. No. I got sin. 
And there's only two ways that that sin is going to be dealt with. Let's be honest. Can I be honest with you today? There's one way. And that is we die in our sin like Ezekiel described. And just go, yeah, I don't think I'm going to deal with that. And then one day we stand before God. He, cons- he considers us as guilty. He sees the sin that we have committed. It has never been dealt with. And he ushers us away into judgment. And we will never be in his presence again for all eternity. When we, when we bear the brunt of our sin. But there's a second way that our sin can be dealt with. In fact, it already has been. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins on the cross. And God says, he's a free gift to you. He's my gift to you to deal with the sin problem that we all have. But he is the solution. See, God's not unfair. He's provided a way that is available to us. And as Ezekiel called out with this, turn and live. That's the message this morning. If we have never trusted Christ, that, oh, he's my sin bearer. He's my solution to the problem of sin that God will judge He's either going to judge it so that its impact falls on me, or he's already judged it so its impact falls on Christ. He's already done that. But you see, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So we've got to receive the gift. John says, to as many as received him. So my friends, here's that first level. I'm asking you to consider this. Eternity lies in the balance for each of us on this question. Have you ever received Jesus Christ? Have you ever put your faith in him as Savior as the only one able to deal with the unrighteousness that exists in your life and my life and everybody else's life who is here. And if not, Ezekiel, from centuries away, speaks, why should you die? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies. Turn and live. Repent. Let Christ be the Savior that you need. And it is as simple, because there's not anything else we can do. It is as simple as acknowledging that we are the sinner that the Scripture says we are, that we have the need that the Scripture says that we need, that Christ is the only hope that the Scripture says is our only hope, and then embracing that and saying, Lord, I need you. I cling to you. I call upon you to be my Savior because I realize I got nothing else. So that's that first level that we all need to address. But you know, when we become believers, we still have this issue of sin that God is working on in our lives, doesn't he? And if we continue to hold on to it, I'm not saying we're going to lose our salvation, but I am saying that God moving us to places where we are more whole, more Christ-like, more joyful, more full in the things of God. God's not alienated from us. God's Uh, effectively working, it's going to take still turn and live. So that challenge everyone here, and most of us, I believe, probably already have put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But what are those places in our lives where God is saying to us, this is bringing death to you because it is sin. It is simply sin. And it brings death. And, And there's this whole area of of, of, of your existence that's not alive. I never thought of this until just now, and I hope it's not offensive. But we prayed for Edie earlier. And Edie's going through chemo treatment. Why? Because they identified there are places 
after they had to first remove some a lobe of her lung, now there are other places they see where there is still there are some cancer cells, right? And many of us here have experienced cancer. Well, what is that cancer? That cancer is a death that exists with us. So it's within us. And those tissues are not, they're not healthy, and they only have the end of death in them. Maybe we could think of sin in that way. It's like, hey, where I have sin in my life, it's a cancer that is going to be growing and destroying me. It just does. And God says, turn and live. Confession is the hard part of that, though, isn't it, friends? I struggle with it. Oh, really? Really, Lord? (laughs) Yes, really. Because he wants us to live. God doesn't delight to see his children living in places of darkness and confusion and chaos. He delights when we enter into the wholeness of what he has for us in Jesus Christ. And whether for an initial turning for salvation or for an ongoing keeping the keeping the pathway between us and God open, it's always going to require us to turn, turn back to the cross, acknowledge that's the only solution we have for our sin. Confess that and get that out of there. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for this sweet little find in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, Lord, that speaks so much of the things that we come to, came to understand more, more fully when Christ came, but... There they were in seed form, Lord. And we can continually return to them. And I thank you for that. Father, if there's anyone here who's never received Christ as Savior, I pray this is the day. They say, Lord Jesus, I am desperately in need of you. Be my Savior. And Father, for each of us who are struggling with sin in our lives and we're trying to ignore it, we're trying to uh, pretend like it's not there, we're pretending that it it doesn't have real impact, Uh, all the excuses we make, Lord, it's bringing death. And I pray that we too will turn and live, asking it in Jesus' name. Amen.